Hello and welcome to the Exploring Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Krim. And on this podcast, we explore uh, different topics, ideas, emerging trends within healthcare. And we also interview thought leaders and entrepreneurs to learn more about the projects and the businesses that they're working on. On this episode, I sit down with Amy Rx Baker, and uh, Amy's been a leader in the pharmacy industry for over a decade as a pharmacist, as a pharmacy community manager, and uh, been a great advocate for independent pharmacists all across this country. During our conversation, we talk a little bit about her background. We talk about some healthcare legislation and the need for uh, greater competition within the healthcare space, especially the drug industry. We talk about pharmacy benefit managers, what they are, what role they play in the drug industry. And we wrap it up uh, talking a little bit about personal health and toxic burden. Uh, What is it? Why is it important? Why is it something that we should be thinking about? So I hope you'll sit back. I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Amy Rx Baker. All right, we'll go and get started. Amy, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, I thought we would. We I thought we would start. We uh, we connected on LinkedIn, and uh, and I, I noticed uh, you're, you're a pharmacist, and we're putting out a lot of great content around uh, healthcare reform and things that you were seeing in regards to legislation or just trends in the market that. Uh, affect pharmacists directly and in the drug industry in general. And um, so I definitely want to spend some time talking about that, but I I do want to open it up too. And, and uh, we can, we can walk back as far as you want to go, but if you'd mind sharing, or if you feel comfortable sharing a little bit about your background and uh, who's Amy Baker. Oh, okay. Um, So I'm, I've finally been honest about how I got into pharmacy just in this past year or two. Um, I wanted, I was originally a ballerina and figured I failed at that. And my second goal was to get a doctorate. So I was doing a lot of lab research, seeing if I wanted to do a PhD or an MD. Um, Decided I didn't want my whole life hinging on grant funding. Mm. And so um, I applied to MD and the PharmD programs. And I really wanted to be a physician, to be honest. Um, The idea of disease state management didn't appeal to me and it still doesn't. Um, and pharmacy school took me and I made the best of it. You know, I um, learned to embrace what pharmacists do. I love what we're capable of doing in pharmacy. I love the people I've worked with. Um, but because of, I think my roots, I've really gone more into the leadership aspect from day one. Mm-hmm. And, and also just cause I think who I am. Um, yeah, and so I worked for a QIO. I, um, I did my pharmacy residency in community pharmacy in um, Hawaii. I thought I was going to do pediatric oncology and hospital residency, and like that never happened. So everything I've thought I was going to do in my career, my life had another plan, and it's always turned out beautiful in the end. So. And I've been spending the last seven years uh, as director of pharmacy at a federally qualified health center in Southern Oregon. What did you learn from that fork in the road? Um, what lessons did that teach you that you've been able to use in your your work as a pharmacist and as a leader and just you know life in general? Um, so the first fork was my residency. Well, I mean, actually, the first fork was I didn't even get a residency. And so I had a mentor that reached out to me and he was um, hired to 
create a residency for University of Hawaii Hilo on the island of Maui. And um, he said, hey, if you want this residency in Hawaii, uh, send me your resume in the next 24 hours. So, and it was supposed to be hospital. And I was ready to go. I went and visited, signed up. At the last minute, they said, it's going to be community pharmacy residency. The hospital backed out. And I said, well, I'm going to do it. I don't really have a other option right now. Mm-hmm. What that taught me was your mentors and the people along the road, critical to have good relations, to keep contact, to respect that they, 10, 15 years down the road even, they could be the bridge you absolutely need. Absolutely. Um, he got me a residency with no interview. And then I went with it. And what was beautiful about community pharmacy residency that I probably would not have received in the hospital was I got to see, I got to work with public health. I worked in little tiny pharmacy. Um, I worked in long-term care. So I saw every point in the healthcare system where patients fall through the cracks, right? Like every single point, it was like, oh my God, they're just falling through the cracks everywhere, which was beautiful to get that comprehensive picture. Yeah. So. Do you think that was the kind of the early beginnings and the birth of your eyes opening kind of to the system and in general? And like you said, some of these cracks. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And I actually came up with the idea. Um, someone else did it, but um, it's called farm to farm. And I said, what, what if we did a handoff? You know, nurses hand off patients all the time. What if we did a handoff from the hospital to the independent pharmacy? And um you know, UH Hilo found a grant and ran with it, thank God. But um, Mm. yeah, so coming up with all those ideas and looking at the patient, like being able to go into someone's home, you know, we think these MTM program, medication therapy management programs are great, but it's like, if you don't know what's happening in their home, you know, someone with allergies, I went and she had bowls of water, you know, they have problems with mosquitoes there. And she had probably 10 cats and Mm. she hadn't, so there was moisture, cat hair everywhere. Of course she had allergy issues. Yeah. She's not gonna tell the doctor that. So yeah. how do we get a real picture of what's actually going on? Yeah. You know. It's an interesting point. It reminds me of something that I've been I've been uh, studying quite a bit and, and doing a lot of um, thinking about and uh, this really concept of virtual care more than just telemedicine where, hey, I'm going to talk to you for five, 10 minutes and call me in the prescription and kind of move on with my day, but really um, fundamentally changing kind of the way that medicine is conducted and getting to appear in people's lives and maybe yeah. uh, being able to connect with a patient at their home at a very you know vulnerable state. If we think about things like mental illness and that kind of stuff where they're not in a state where they're going to go hop in a car and drive themselves to their doctor's clinic and sit down with them, uh, just things like that. And this idea of ongoing triaging to where it's more than just a once a year type of thing, a little blurb at the end of the uh, patient chart, but that ongoing triaging, that developer relationship. So it sounds like um, what you just said there kind of reminded me of of that. So, Yeah. And I've spoken with um, the pharmacists that I've worked, I work with and that I've uh, managed and then other providers too, that are saying, I prefer virtual care because I get to see the patient's home. And then you say, oh, let me show you something and then bring the camera over and, and have that 
interaction and they feel more safe, some of them at home, to then share some of their life. So what you're saying, right. you know, we've actually had a little window of it um, in the past year and a half, which is beautiful. And I would think that would be so applicable to uh, to pharmacy, uh, definitely also from a physician standpoint too, because uh, probably a lot less likely that the patient's going to bring all my medication to my doctor's uh, appointment. But hey, if, I'm at, if they're at their home, like, hey, walk me through the medication that you're taking. So yeah. I can see if there's any red flags here. Are we mixing any that should not be mixed, that type of stuff. So yeah, show me the bottle and yeah, oh, I forgot to bring it to visit. You know, oh, good, right. maybe next time in six months, right? So right. yeah, you, the missed opportunities suddenly are not missed. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've seen you post some um, really about two uh, legislations I wanted to talk about, pieces of legislation, mm -hmm. and I've seen some others post as well. But uh, and I'm I'm by no means an, an expert on, on these or, uh, or pretend to be, but uh, I want to get your thoughts on, you know, the Competitive Health uh, Insurance Reform Act uh, that went to effect at the beginning of 2020 and then uh, Biden's recent executive order with the uh, competition in American economy. And just kind of walk me through, you know, from your perspective, your understanding, how is that directly affecting, um, you know, the healthcare industry and really this idea of, you know, price transparency? So it's pretty new to me as well. And so I'm learning right along with you. Mm -hmm. We'll <laughs> um, learn together. That's Yeah, that's the idea. So, um, and I don't even know about the McCarran-Ferguson Act too much, but what I do know is that um, the insurance companies are no longer, the antitrust exemption for health insurance companies that was given to them under the McCarran-Ferguson Act is no longer applicable under health insurance, the CHIRA. Yep. health and agency. And so that became, that was signed January 13th of 2021. Um, what is interesting to me about that, you know, so someone can put an act, but unless we act on the act, it doesn't mean much. Mm -hmm. um, I know that there's a whole area of law where we hold our nation, our states and our organizations accountable. So what's interesting to me about this is that I know that vertical integration, which we'll get into, uh, I think mm -hmm. is one of your questions, health care mergers went rampant after Trump's tax reform, tax reform back in 2018. And there were an incredible amount of mergers in healthcare and, and other mergers too. And, you know, I can't say one caused the other, but I try and look at patterns. Um, mm -hmm. So it's been very interesting that right before Trump leaves office, he, he puts this, uh, this in here, um, even though I think it was a tax reform law that actually enabled this vertical integration. I don't think it's impacted price transparency yet. Um, I think it was a good precursor to the antitrust, um, the executive order that uh, Biden, um, what are they calling it? The executive order on promoting competition in the American economy that was put out in July of 2021. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it was a good precursor, although that executive order covers all kinds of areas and a lot of um, livestock and agriculture and right. Um, 
So I don't know that it's actually made uh, an impact yet. I'm hopeful that if we can educate our Congress people um, on how they can use that to actually benefit healthcare, um, then we can make some progress. But what I'll say, and, and hopefully I'm answering your question, just stop me if I'm not. Um, no, you are. The hospital, so the executive order kind of pinpoints hospital consolidation as an access issue, and sure it is, um, but then it also talks about increasing access to generic drugs um, and probably changing some of the patent law in order to increase access to generic drugs. That's not the problem because the pharmacy benefit management companies are the ones that determine what drugs are on the formulary, what they're gonna reimburse the pharmacies, and they determine the cost to the patient. So if we're trying to reduce the cost to the patient, reducing the cost of the drug to the pharmacy is not necessarily the answer, or reducing the copay to the patient is not necessarily the answer because then the independent pharmacies get reimbursed less their margin gets lower, they go out of business, the PBMs come in and buy them up and they win again, and they just get bigger and bigger, which is anti-competitive. So the one place that's not mentioned in this executive order is insurance, PBMs, which are pharmacy benefit management companies as the middlemen between pharmacies and insurance companies, who by the way now own insurance company, PBM, and the pharmacies, and drug dis distribution. Um, they missed the whole middleman part in this executive order. It's not even mentioned. So thankfully, we have the CHIRA that, that opens up the ability to enforce antitrust legislation on health insurance, because I think that's what we need. Can you, for any um, any that aren't familiar, can you can you walk us through uh, what a pharmacy benefit manager is? And uh, it's it's no secret um, they like to to play some games. They like to play uh, some pricing games and and hide their sources of, of revenue. Not all of them, but um, but uh, a lot of them do. Can you kind of walk us through, you know, what a PBM is and, and maybe some of those pricing games that they play? Yeah. Um, so when I mentioned PBMs especially in this context, those are pharmacy benefit managers. Um, I'm really talking about, you know, the top three or four. Mm -hmm. um, and especially, you know, I don't know if you want me to mention names here, but the, the big ones, okay? Because there's actually a lot of small PBMs out there trying to do the right thing um, with drug pricing. So basically, um, and if it's okay to use one of the companies as an example. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Okay. So I think the biggest one at this point is CVS Caremark. So Caremark was um, the PBM and they bought CVS pharmacies back in, I think, 2006 or seven. Um, and basically the PBM contracts with the health insurance company the health insurance company says, I'm going to give you this money. You contract with the thousands or, you know, thousands of pharmacies. You decide what to pay them and then we'll pay you to manage the drug benefit part of our health insurance. Okay. 
which makes a lot of sense because the health insurance company is dealing with medical. <laughs> um, so it's, it's probably a necessary evil, if you will. Um, the problem with that, and I think it shows in the reduction of access, the reduction of independent pharmacies, um, especially from 2005 to 2018, we lost 16% of rural pharmacies. And the majority of those were between 2007 and 2009, um, which is when, I mean, I don't know, you can't say it's the cause, but it was right when CVS Caremark came to be. So what happens is, I'll just use CVS Caremark as a, uh, which is now CVS Health as an example. They contract with their own pharmacies and they contract with the competitors. So they know the cost of business, they know the cost of medications. All the contracts, except for long-term care pharmacies, all the contracts are FOIA exempt, which means they're confidential and you cannot share. So as a business owner, I can't go and say, hey, my CVS or my Humana or my whatever contract, Express Scripts, right? My contract, my reimbursement rate is this with this pair. What is yours? We can't do that. It also means we have no idea what CVS pays their own pharmacies and if they pay them more than us. So there's no transparency in the contracting and the payment to pharmacies. They also create exclusive networks um, where if you're not in their preferred network, which is, it's really hard to get in a preferred network if you're less than 10 pharmacies. So all these independent pharmacies who really, really help their patients are eventually their margins get reduced. And, and what's beautiful is these PBMs know like how much they need to reduce the margin for them, the, in the pharmacies to go out of business and then they just buy their patients. So they can um, exclude them from these specialty networks, which means the patient copay goes up. So then the patient doesn't wanna pay that higher copay, they go back to CVS or Walgreens or whatever, we you know, whichever pharmacy mm -hmm. um, is in the specialty network, which tends to be the big chain pharmacies, okay? They also do DIR fees, direct and indirect remuneration based on MedD star ratings, okay? So MedD says you need, to you need to meet these star ratings. And so then they put it on the pharmacies to do. And in, in a sense, that makes sense. The problem is they can change them at will. Um, they would do horrific clawbacks based on, um, usually on compliance, but to know how to do the compliant, like how to be a patient, make a, how to determine that a patient is compliant is mm -hmm. super difficult to figure out. And that what they would do is also force patients to mail order. Well, when people are on mail order, it's automatic. They're more compliant. Well, the mail order is with the big chain pharmacies and they would prevent you from being able to do mail order so that you couldn't do what they're doing. So how does your patient get compliant? How do you have those scores? They're preventing you in all these different ways, you being the independent pharmacy from, mm -hmm. from getting the numbers to avoid these huge clawbacks tens of thousands of dollars. And so what they're doing is they're holding on. And then, so that would be, you know, they, they would do that and then they would take money later on. 
Um, you couldn't really tie it. There was no way to tie it to individual prescriptions to audit what they were doing. Even in Oregon, we have, um, they don't allow DIR fees as of January 1st, 2021. So, but they already saw that coming. And some of the payers um, like Humana would, um, they have the, um, I forget what they're calling it. It's like a, you know, a clinical program where they would say they're giving you say $100 for medication, but they'd actually only give you $80. And you mm -hmm. might get some of that back based on your clinical measures within 15 months. So they're mm -hmm. holding pharmacies money for up to 15 months and not paying them interest. And there's no guarantee that they're not gonna change the criteria within that 15 months so that we don't get the money back. Mm. And that's, it's been killing pharmacies and they've been making a ton of money off of that. Um, I would say those are the biggest ways that they make it very difficult for pharmacies who, you know, in rural areas and um, just make it so hard for them to stay in business and actually serve the patients they desperately want to serve. Yeah. What's the end up re result of that? And you may have, may have already alluded to it, but they end up having to sell out to the PBM. Yeah, or to the, to the pharmacy, which most of the biggest chain pharmacies are owned by the PBM. So, yeah. so, so they actually sell to another pharmacy, you know, um, um, I wrote an FTC comment that I'm happy to share with you on December 31st of 2018 on mm -hmm. vertical integration. And I was appalled that there were only 12 comments on the last day of the comment period. Um, and so New Year's Eve, before I went out, I was typing this FTC comment. Um, oh, but I saw three local pharmacies in my area of Medford, Oregon, go out of business in a span of a year and a half, I think. And our patients just got shuffled. You know, they would call up the pharmacy. Um, the pharmacy wasn't allowed to tell them. And then it would be rerouted to Safeway. And they'd say, oh, you're now with Safeway. And they go, what? I don't want to be with Safeway. So the patients weren't treated with any respect um, with those buyouts either. They just buy their information because they want their money. It's not very humane. No. No. I was going to mention too, it's really interesting. Uh, a couple months ago, uh, I was doing quite a bit of studying on the, the games that a lot of PBMs can play. And uh, the um, mail order one was really eye opening to me. And my understanding there is that um, because they're, they're taking and repackaging the drug, they legally do not have to, to notify their customer that they've changed the price. Oh, and then they've got you on this cycle where they can just easily like kind of send it out periodically. And so you're probably getting more than paying you, for more yes. than you need, you know, so. Oh, absolutely. So on that note, to, just to show that you're right, um, talk about medical waste, which then goes mm -hmm. into our, our landfill and our water, by the way, which does affect mm -hmm. us. There was a patient I went to um, during my residency and his dresser was full of medications from mail order. He says, I don't know how to tell them to stop. I'm not taking these anymore. They've changed my dose and they just keep sending it to me. Mm. And, and they're charging, the, I mean, they're, they're getting paid for that and charging the insurance company for medical waste. 
Right. Yeah. That's what I was just, my thought was, it's like yeah. a lot of time that may not be costing the, him anything, <laughs> you know, but someone's in charge for it. Right. Yeah. So, someone's paying yeah. for it, but it's, yeah. And, yeah. and what's interesting is they're saying, oh, it increases compliance. Sending the medication to a patient is not compliance or adherence, right? It's not them taking it as intended, when intended, is, I would say, adherence, right? Yeah. Hmm. So um, that's how they sold it to insurance companies, I think, to hmm. get the mail order going. Yeah, the pharmacy is such a it's a big piece um and, and the pbms it's uh one of the things i'm most active out you know talking about and trying to educate people on and, and especially um employers with their health plan to really you know just spend just stop 10 15 minutes and just like let's think through some of these things because there's a big cost there and um with a little bit of research with a little bit of effort you can make some positive changes there and 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 even then i think the piece i probably have uh missed and you know folks like yourself and, and some others i've run across they're making opening my eyes is like there's people behind these 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 businesses you know and i think we a lot of times in chasing the dollar we miss the human side of it as well and say how many independent pharmacies are there around the country that are being forced out of business because of this you know it's it's not yeah. just mr employer can i you save some money no there's a human side to it as well which is more important so yeah and you'd be amazed at how dedicated people become to their pharmacy because mm -hmm. they see the same pharmacist for you know days and day months and months and years sometimes and it's it's devastating to them to have that one regular caregiver mm -hmm. leave you know, um, some of our elderly, right, who came from a time when that um, that relationship was really important, and they and we don't yeah. have that anymore with physicians, and so then they don't want to go to a big store where they don't know anyone, and it's a temp pharmacist every day, and right, in, you know, so that human element is um, suffers a lot, along with every, um, along with so much else, you know. Right, right. Yeah. You mentioned vertical integration. Can you? Um, explain more, you know, what that is and how it relates to healthcare. Yeah, um, I would say it's the biggest anti, I mean, I don't know the whole industry in the American economy, right? I'll never, I, I came into this because I was dealing with contracts and wanted to make it, you know, and just saying this isn't right, this isn't right, I have to learn more. Mm -hmm. But what happened with vertical integration is the bypass of the term monopoly. So with vertical integration um, in healthcare, you have, and I'll speak in the pharmacy realm specifically, there's other realms, right? But like Caremark, PBM, buying the pharmacy, the pharmacies, and then getting so big from 2007, 2006 or seven to 2018, that they buy Aetna, the health insurance company that contracted with them and many other PBMs. Now, how, how is that possible that they get so big? So what's happened, you have the drug supply chain, which includes the manufacturer. I mean, there's so many middlemen, but basically <laughs> the manufacturer, right? Pharmaceutical manufacturing company, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, all those um, companies, drug distribution, supply chain, the 
pharmacies that they send to, the pharmacy benefit management companies that pay the pharmacies, and health insurance. So CVS Health, for one example, just because I know them the best, they're, they're mm -hmm. not the only one. Um, Aetna. They're not a sponsor of the show or anything. No. <laughs> <laughs> and I apologize because I, I, um, I focused more on them because of the contracts I was getting at my work were pickpocketing. And so the worst contracts I was getting were from them. So, mm -hmm. um, so, and I, I just know them the best because of that. So um, does it mean that they're the only company doing this? So you have the health insurance company is the same company as the PBM, as the pharmacy, as some of the drug supply chain. So they own the entire supply chain, one angle of it, except for the manufacturer of the drug. And so why is it that when we look at drug pricing, we're focusing on more access to generics? When the PBM decides what goes on the formulary, well, they may decide that they don't want that on the formulary. In fact, right now, they're, they decide what gets covered. And so we don't really have much of a say as a pharmacy and neither does the patient. If it's not covered, we're not gonna give it to the patient because it's gonna cost them too much. So it doesn't really matter. You know, access to generics is great for cash paying patients, but most of our people are now insured. So back before the Affordable Care Act, I think it, it would have helped a lot. If a lot of people become uninsured, I think it will help a lot. But insurance is big. So, so that vertical integration, meaning that the bigger company owns all the middlemen, mm -hmm. means that there's no competition. There's just like, and you getting in when they own the entire supply chain or almost the entire supply chain is just really difficult. Um, and it bypasses monopoly, which is horizontal. And so I think um, the Federal Trade Commission didn't, I don't know if they just turned a blind eye, if there weren't enough comments, if it happened too fast, you know that they were lined up. Those mergers don't happen overnight. Like mm -hmm. they all, they were getting ready for it, right? Um, so I'm just not quite sure how that happened. And now they're trying to backtrack and, you know, and, but I'm sorry, preventing mergers is a lot easier than making a huge corporation split itself. So. It's a, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question and something worth uh, spending some more time thinking about and studying because uh, I've had that same question myself. And I, I don't know if it was a, a lack of understanding, you know, from our, our politicians and regulators about how the industry functioned and um, how many middlemen there were, you know, I, I don't know, um, but it's yeah. definitely an interesting question. Well, and, and these, these executive orders and these acts are great. And I also know these are politicians that a lot of them want to do the right thing. Um, a lot of them wanted to put the message forth at a particular time to make things, you know, to quell fears or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they also don't have all the information, right? I mean, 
I can't even imagine how much information flows into any congressperson. Like beyond me, how much I, they can't take it all in, right? So it's up to us to us being people who care and who are you know knowledgeable to say we need to look at this and this is the information and this is why, right? It's they can't. <laughs> They're one person, you know. There's yeah. there's many of them, but um, and so they're bound to miss things in these, in these. And so we, yeah, we just need to educate them. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to assume best intent first, assume that they don't have the information. Um, and then I can say, I gave them the information and then hopefully they act on it. Right. Yeah. We're getting close to our, uh, to our time here. One, one thing I wanted to ask you about, and uh, I'm going to encourage uh, those listening to to check it out, you gave a, a talk at the Longevity Summit uh, 2016 on toxic burden, uh, which I found yeah. to be very interesting and um, very eye-opening. And uh, so can you you walk us through a little bit, you know, what that is and, and why that's important and something that we should should think about? Yeah, um, thanks for asking because it's something I'm pretty passionate about. Um, so when I realized that pharmacy doesn't create health um, on that, you know, our system really doesn't foster health. I don't think, I don't think it was designed for that. Um, I did a fellowship in functional medicine. And so I was in the middle of my fellowship when I did that talk and just realizing that the bird, like our bodies were, are beautifully designed to take in substances, transmute them, and then excrete them. And we do that with food. We do that with medications. And we do that with toxins. So one thing that people don't usually realize is the toxins all around us. And it becomes, um, you know, toxic burden is when your body can no longer handle the, um, the toxins and transforming them and, and getting rid of them. And so it holds on to them. And what I talked about more specifically was personal care products. Um, because my eyes were opened up by the, com uh, the company Beauty Counter, who has been, they've been lobbying on um, Capitol Hill for years now. So when I started in 2016, the European Union banned about 1,100 chemicals, 11 or 1,200 chemicals from personal care products. That's anything that touches your body, anything, soap, shampoo, whatever. We banned 35 in the US. These are chemicals that are potentially carcinogenic and known to be harmful in some form or fashion. We now ban 50 something, I think. So we, and there had been no legislation for many, many years. Okay. I'm not gonna assume a, a number that low, just comparing that these are, these are really bad. <laughs> like, they are bad, really I mean, bad. yeah. So perfume has plasticizers in it to help it stick to you. Okay. You know, when we have the, the, the BPA free everything. Yeah. There are plasticizers in most perfumes. So anything that says natural, it's probably not natural, hmm. which is a, it's like a misnomer. Right. And so I brought that up because people, you can throw medications at people all the time, but if they're taking in toxins in their food, if they're putting toxins on their body, if they're using aerosol fresheners and like scented um, laundry detergent and all these things, 
that when you get a cancer diagnosis, they say, stop using these products. Use these simple products instead. Why wouldn't we do that to prevent cancer? To reduce our risk of cancer, right? Like, so it's just something that I was kind of blown away by um, and wanted to let people know that there, there are simple ways to reduce toxic burden on the body so that our body can put its resources toward healing, right? If it's always trying to clear toxins, it's really hard to heal. We, we're not a machine that can just, we can just, you know, abuse it and be like, okay, I'm going to replace a part now. And we, we kind of can do that, but it's expensive and costly to our quality of life. So yeah, that was, Hopefully that answers a little bit of your... Yeah, it did. It did. And um, one of the um, things I took away from that talk as well was there was actually a, uh, an app that you could download that you could actually scan uh, uh -huh. products. like Healthy were... Living. I don't know if okay. it's still Healthy Living, but yeah, it's pretty cool because you can scan. They combined, there were, there were a couple and they combined so you can scan any personal care product in the store, just boop, and it will rate it on safety level. And they also, you can scan now um, like household cleaning supplies and stuff like that to see how safe they are. So the, okay. the label can say anything, yeah. but they have done a really good job of looking at all these products and um, the environmental, environmental working group, pretty amazing group, um, has put a lot of work into that. But you know, the there's so many chemicals that go into commerce every year and the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, has um, the burden of having to decide if they are safe or not. And I don't think our EPA is capable of managing that many chemicals. Mm. So we just have a system that doesn't really allow um, the proper, um, what's the word? It's proper research and assessment of all these chemicals coming into commerce and whether they are safe or not for people. Right. That yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've really enjoyed this, uh, this conversation. Really yeah, appreciate again, you making the time. Um, if people wanted to, to reach out and get in contact with you and if, with any questions about anything that, you, that you've said or just to connect, what's the best way for them to, to do that? Good question. Um, I would say reaching out to me I'm on Instagram, Amy RX Baker. I'm on um, LinkedIn, Amy RX Baker. Um, that would probably be the best way um, rather than giving my email out. I get, yeah, no, I get a lot of emails as it is. Um, yeah. So those are pretty much, if you search Amy RX Baker on social media, you'll find me in multiple places. So that's probably the best way. All right, awesome. I'll, I'll put that in the... Uh in the show notes so okay well thanks again yeah thank you so much super fun all right well that does it for this episode of the exploring healthcare podcast i hope you enjoyed the conversation hope you'll consider tuning into future episodes and i'll be posting those on linkedin on twitter at nicholas Krim, and also my website nicholasc.com but until then hope you have a great day and thanks again for tuning in